I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About the Secular and the Religious. Religiosity is as much about public appearance and practice as it is about belief. It's how you present yourself in public. It's the clothes you wear. You know, some guys wear Mohicans and, and, and some people dye their hair and do things in order to make a public statement. Some people cover themselves up and with just a slit for the eyes. To attribute theological or religious motives to these forms of behavior seems to me to be giving too much ground. It seems to me to be saying that you take what they are saying at face value, whereas the whole point of any kind of analysis is to say, well, what's really going on here? Malise Riven has been talking and writing about religion for 40 years, ever since he joined the Arabic section of the BBC World Service in the early 70s. During that time, he's seen a remarkable surge in fundamentalist forms of religion all around the world. One reason for it, he's concluded, is religion's unequal ability to express identity, to say who I am and where I belong. A journalist and sometime academic, Riven made his name with a book called Islam in the World in 1984. Ten more books have followed, mostly on Islam, but also on religion in the United States. In 2004, he published Fundamentalism, The Search for Meaning, in which he tries to show what various religious back-to-basics movements around the world have in common. Today on Ideas, he discusses that book with Ideas producer David Cayley as we continue our series, The Myth of the Secular. The expectation that religion would gradually fade away in modern societies was once widespread. Most of the giants of modern social theory made this prediction. Karl Marx saw religion as false consciousness, the opium of the people, and thought that communism would break the spell. Max Weber thought that what he called disenchantment would be produced by science, bureaucracy, and modern social organization. Either way, secularization would result. This was the consensus view in sociology well into the 1970s. Then strange and unpredicted things began to happen. The 1979 revolution in Iran marked the beginning of the Islamic revival. The American political landscape was reshaped by fundamentalist Christians. One secular Israel saw a revival of traditional forms of Judaism, and Hindu nationalists achieved power in India. One of the people who's attempted an overview of this surprising development has been the journalist, writer, and teacher Malise Riven. His book, Fundamentalism, is a search for what he calls the family resemblance between these various religious revivals around the world. I called on him recently at his home in London's North Kensington district, and he talked to me first about the early 20th century milieu in which the term fundamentalism was first used. It came, he said, from a rather surprising source. Two wealthy oil magnets produced a series of texts which were sent to preachers and pastors and religious educations all over the Anglo-Saxon world, setting out what they saw, or the contributors to the text saw, as the fundamentals of Christian belief, such as the fact that Adam and Eve were real people, that the virgin birth was uh, a real a miraculous event, the physical resurrection of the body of Christ, and those kind of cardinal aspects of the Christian faith, because they felt themselves to be under challenge, under threat, from the liberal theology being taught in various seminaries, particularly in North America, and notably Chicago Divinity School, which whose principal sponsor 
was John D. Rockefeller, who was their main business <laughs> rival. So there was a kind of element of oil politics involved in the whole thing, which has echoes today when we have the Saudis, you know, being the main sponsors of so-called Islamic fundamentalism throughout the world. So that's a, an interesting aspect of it. But the word was actually coined on the basis of these texts. So first you had the fundamentals of Christianity, and then people say, well, there is such a thing as fundamentalism. And the first fundamentalists in the United States used it as a positive term, you know, I'm a fundamentalist and I'm proud of it. That's nothing wrong. Now it's acquired much more negative connotations because you actually find people accuse their opponents as being fundamentalists. And of course, it's, the word has required connotations way outside religion. We talk about market fundamentalism. Neoliberalism is a form of market fundamentalism. The IMF is, uh, you know, victim of fundamentalist economic policies. You have, in Germany, you have the contest between the, within the Green Party there, between the realos, the realists, who say, well, we have to make compromises with nuclear power, and the people they call the fundies, the fundamentalists, who are absolute pure green, you know, no nukes or, or nothing else. So the word, I think, has acquired sort of universal resonances because it speaks to something which is very common in contemporary culture, which is, in a sense, the, the struggle between pragmatism and ideological purity. So I take slight exception to the overuse of the term because if a term is too widely used, it uses its precision, you know, and I've rather tried to restrict it just to uh, religious aspects. But there I think we do find something very interesting, which is these family resemblances that you find between religious revival movements in a number of different contexts. Obviously, uh, Christian creationists, the Armageddon enthusiasts that you find throughout uh, North America, do locate the origins of the belief system in the interpretation of particular texts and a very literalistic interpretation of particular texts like the book of Revelation. Um, you will find that many Islamic radicals will found their radicalism on the basis of literal interpretations of passages of the Quran. You will find some of the Jewish settlers in the occupied territories in Palestine will say, well, this is our land because it says in the Bible that God gave it to us. So there is this kind of rooting of contemporary uh, behavior and attitudes in literal interpretations of religiously hallowed texts. And that is something that you find increasingly in many different traditions at the present time. One of the things fundamentalisms around the world have in common, in Malise Ribbon's view, is their denial of the need for interpretation. The sacred text is viewed as unequivocal and unquestionable. In Christian countries, this was, among other things, a response to the careful 19th century scholarship which had made the Bible unbelievable as a work of history. The Fundamentals, the book series funded by the California oil men, was intended to restore its authority. This undertaking presented itself as a restoration of tradition, a return to the pure, unclouded source, but it was, in fact, peculiarly contemporary. Pre-modern Christians didn't read the Bible literally. Who will be found simple enough, wrote one of the fathers of the church, to believe that God, like some farmer, planted trees in the Garden of Eden. The idea that Scripture possesses a single, unmistakable meaning developed only in response to scientific criticism of its text, along with other modern threats. And it took several forms. One was the turn back to theological basics represented by the fundamentals. Another grew out of a literal reading of the book of Revelation, 
in which history comes to a violent end and Jesus returns in gory judgment. An Anglo-Irishman, John Nelson Darby, uh, went to Texas in the 1890s and he was really instrumental in promoting this idea that uh, the second coming of Jesus is going to come very soon. It will produce a period of turbulence after which, you know, the thousand reign of Jesus will take over and um, all will be happy and all the rest. And the uh, the good guys will be raptured up to heaven and the bad guys will perish miserably and all that kind of thing. I mean, my interpretation of that, which I think is probably rather... Um, rather my own view, is that this took particular uh, sort of purchase. It became quite popular in the southern states after the defeat in the Civil War. And you could sort of see, well, these Yankees, they think they've won. They're the kind of progressive people but they've got another thing coming because Jesus is going to come and zap them. I mean, I think that's putting it very reductionist way, but you could see that this whole movement gained traction in the antebellum South. And there's a kind of a way in which I think if one kind of discourse is excluded from public protection, public awareness, because it's sort of hors de combat, in the first instance, slavery, in the second instance, uh, racism, overt racism, human emotions will find outlets in, in kind of parallel visions. I mean, it's very interesting. I once attended the Southern Baptist Conference in, in St. Louis, and I was just very struck as a visiting alien that it was 99% completely all white. And, of course the black Baptists tend to be much more liberal and progressive in their views. So there is a sense in which anxieties about race find an outlet in theology. And that is very much the kind of issue that I think you find in the Muslim world today, that anxieties that have social origins will very often find expression in, in religious terms. Can one derive a sort of rule of thumb from that? That, that? that people work their conflicts out at the, in a sense, at the highest level? I think, on a cosmological and mythological scale? I think there is a case of sort of upping the ante. Yes, we all aspire to something beyond ourselves. And if we feel very passionately about something, maybe we give it a cosmic dimension. And that's, I think, an awful lot of the fascination of religious discourse comes precisely in the way the human tendency towards hyperbole finds expression, because nothing is really more hyperbolic than theology. That's what theology is about. But I don't think religious conflict is actually about theology. I think that the issue that one needs to address when one's really looking at, say, religious conflict at the present time is about issues of identity and how identities are constructed socially. And quite clearly, religions have an enormous leverage in the way they can consolidate group identities, particularly in minority situations. And one of the interesting things about the modern world is, in a sense, everybody's a minority because, you know, we live in this huge global soup. And so if we want to construct particular sort of identities for themselves, ourselves, I mean, I'm not religious myself. I suppose I'm a, simply a white Celtic Anglo-Saxon intellectual, which is a different kind of a, a, a minority. But an awful lot of people fall back the kind of default mode for people who find themselves in a minority situation where they may feel insecure is to fall back on religious practices. They may not even be beliefs. I think we put too much emphasis on belief, but religious practices that make them feel comfortable about themselves.
American fundamentalism remained for much of the 20th century a non-political phenomenon. It created an extensive network of institutions, but remained, as one of its leaders, pastor and televangelist Jerry Falwell once said, a sleeping giant. After the 1960s, it began to wake up. What I think happened was that it was possible for the right wing of the Republican Party, particularly, to mobilize on the basis of a perceived secularism, which was undermining or ignoring the attitudes, the conservative attitudes of the silent majority. And of course, religion is a very, very powerful mobilizing force. It was people like Falwell in the 80s and Pat Robertson and so forth who really got that underway. They also had some advantages from changes in the broadcasting regulations which enabled them to start up these hugely popular evangelical TV shows. And it is interesting that in the UK, where we have a much more regulatory regime for broadcasters, that kind of momentum has not happened. I mean, there are anxieties about religion in the UK at the present time, but you don't have hot gospelers preaching anathemas on the box. The regulators simply don't allow it. So I think there are other factors involved in that. But quite clearly, these figures were able to mobilize anxieties and feelings and attitudes that were very deeply rooted in the culture and hadn't found perhaps outlets or expressions in Hollywood sitcoms or what they saw as the transgressive and sexually explicit culture of the 60s and 70s. And uh, they've, of course, become a very important political force, although there's always the paradox in the end, a Republican nominee can't succeed to the presidency unless he can bring the secular right along with them as well. Uh, The religious in America can never totally dominate uh, the show, and also the religious is fairly divided because you take all the liberal religious impulses which are very, very strongly entrenched in the Republican Party, in the Northern Baptist, mainly black churches and so forth. So, you know, there is a... In the end, I'm always quite optimistic about the American balance of religious forces. The idea of a total fundamentalist takeover is is unthinkable. fundamentalism was first coined in the context of American Protestantism. Valise Riven's book, Fundamentalism, takes the step of applying it to other religions as well. In the opening pages of the book, he acknowledges the risk of distortion involved in reducing disparate traditions to a common term. But in the end, he argues that there are remarkable similarities and that grouping them under the same name helps to illuminate these general features. I suppose the important thing was to try to find common ground, and this idea of founding a political ideology on the basis of the interpretation of a religious text was one important strand. You would even find Hindu fundamentalists will use the Upanishads or something like that as sources of transcendental authority. So it's kind of counter-pragmatic. So you're not just making deals, but you have a higher authority for what you are doing. There are common eschatological tendencies that you will find even amongst modern Muslim fundamentalists. Eschatological meaning pertaining to final things? Pertaining to final things. There are early Muslim textual exponents who would describe the end times, both amongst the Sunnis and the Shias, in terms very, very similar to what you would find in Western fundamentalist literature. So that was one of the trends. But I was also interested in exploring 
perhaps certain common educational social strata which I think are relevant because there is a way in which modernist trends, modern trends, you could say infiltrate themselves in the fundamentalist discourse. The way that modern fundamentalists read texts is not actually the way the medieval forebears read texts because language has in, in modern times acquired perhaps a more precise and more instrumental quality than it had in the past. I was always struck by the extent to which amongst Muslim activists, the leaders were very often graduates in the hard sciences, in engineering or medicine, uh, like Ayman Azawahri, who was a doctor, you know, the, the current leader of Al-Qaeda, um, rather than people trained in the linguistic arts, like lawyers and indeed literary theorists. Because if you have a sort of three-dimensional rounded knowledge of, of language, which any student of literature has to acquire, that words have all sorts of different meanings in all sorts of different contexts. Once you take that view, then you can't really say only one interpretation of a biblical or a Quranic text is viable. It it's, opens up a whole semantic range of different uh, meanings and possibilities. But if you're trained as an engineer, you make one small mistake in your calculation of, of the weightage of a bridge, and the bridge collapses. So there is this kind of fundamentalist attitude to language. There's almost a transfer, there's a, there's a search for absolute precision in terms of meaning, which is very much the characteristic of many leaders in developing societies, because if you are trying to modernize your society, you take a certain attitude, you know, there's a right way of doing things, there's a wrong way of doing things. And one of the things that you find across the board, fundamentalists, although they're described as theological conservatives and theological reactionaries, they're very often people who have a very progressive outlook in terms of wanting to improve and change their societies, and they're certainly not enemies of modern technology. So you have this strange kind of combination. I suppose the prime examples would be the Saudis who are planning the tallest building in the world they have they've just built the Royal Tower in Mecca which is a replica of Big Ben in London but five times the size you know many many multi multi stories but at the same time you know they don't allow women to drive and and they have this very hard-edged uh, fundamentalist attitude towards their religion so you've got this extraordinary sort of I've called it cultural schizophrenia, the sort of imbalance between an aspiration towards everything the modern world can deliver without recognizing that in order to live in the modern world, you have to make certain theological adjustments, uh, particularly with regard to the existence of other religions. You can't really even use the word infidel in the modern world. It's a meaningless term, if you think about it. I mean, what do we mean by infidels? Because, you know, everybody has a different set of beliefs. You can't say that mine is true and yours is false. And yet these guys are saying mine is true and yours is false, while at the same time they're trying to operate in a pluralistic environment. And those two things are profoundly contradictory. This contradiction, in Malise Riven's opinion, does have an effect over time. A fundamentalist stance may remain convenient as a source of authority and identity, he says, even while the underlying belief may be softening. I think in the long term, people make accommodations. And one of the things that interests me is what you might call slippage from fundamentalism. Um, there's a lot of slippage takes place, but it's very often unacknowledged. A very obvious example would be in the 1970s and 80s, American pre-millennialists were making huge sums of money selling books like Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, which were predicting the end times in modern, very graphic 
visions, like, you know, when the raptures are, as it were, siphoned up by Jesus into cyberspace, there'll be terrible accidents on the freeway. And these produce amusing, but for many people, very alarming scenarios about, you know, what was going to happen when Jesus comes. But what's happened now is one of the most successful of these writers, Tim LaHaye, has actually transformed himself into a best-selling novelist. And he's writing the, these books about how end times will be for the believers. But they are marketed as fiction. And the very acknowledgement that this is fiction is making quite an important transition from sort of cognitive dissonance of believing one thing and experiencing something completely different towards saying, well, actually, we don't really believe this, but we enjoy celebrating it, which is a sort of subtle shift. And I was very aware of that when I went to a fundamentalist theme park in North Carolina. This was in the early 90s, where you got the sense that the believers were celebrating religiosity as as fun, as something that they shared in common. But it wasn't something that they were going to die for. It was a fun experience. And I think that you can also turn that the other way around. You can say where suicide bombers are dying for a cause. Although it's presented itself as religion, it's not really religion, it's something else. We look at religion as a primary cause very often, whereas I'm more inclined to see it as the outcome of a certain rhetorical position. And people who've done studies of, say, Palestinian suicide bombers will find, well, A, it's a, quite a, or was quite a viable military strategy. B, it's an expression of the desperation and despair that a particular group of people have in the current circumstances. And C, very often motivated by personal feelings of, of revenge or something like that. I mean, there's a whole range of, of motivations which are presented as having a religious aspect. But when you actually look more closely you will see the other factors are probably more important. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159. Today we're continuing our series, The Myth of the Secular. It's presented by David Cayley. Belize Riven calls religion a form of rhetoric, and he means something more, I think, than you might understand if you think of rhetoric as nothing more than verbal embellishment. The point of rhetoric, says Aristotle, is persuasion. Religion, we might say, makes an expressive appeal. It's a form of behavior, as much as it is a mental construct. And it cannot be fully understood, Riven says, unless it is approached and analyzed on this level. Religions so suffuse cultural systems that it becomes very difficult to distinguish what is religious from what is simply semantic. And But I, I think it's significant, perhaps in this context, that when you had the big sort of best-selling attacks on religion, like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, that tackling the idea of God, trying to confront that. And really, religion is much more than that. You know, it's so diffused and slippery that you can make an argument about the existence or the non-existence of, de- of the deity, which, you know, is people have been arguing that for thousands and thousands of years. And it, in a sense, it doesn't really get you anywhere because... It all depends, really, on what you mean by the deity. (laughs) Deity is a concept. Deity is some transcendental, non-empirical, supernatural reality that's actually sitting out there. And, you know, that's a, a respectable argument. 
But when you get to talking about religion, you're engaging with a vast range of social habits, social practices, and so forth. So it becomes very, very difficult to construct an intelligent debate or argument around the very idea of religion. I think one has to limit things much more. You can talk about religiosity, which is a particular sort of mode of counter-secular behavior. And I think that is where issues of identity are obviously very critical. I mean, you get interviews in the newspapers with young Muslim women in Britain who only wear the niqab, the veil. And they will say, I do this because it makes me feel better about God. But I, as a skeptic, would say, well, that simply you're doing it because it makes you feel better, period. And why not? And then the whole range of things comes up. I mean, why would you want to go around in uh, the street with just a slit covering your head and, and, and enveloping black robes? There are all sorts of reasons. One is it, it's kind of challenging the way very underclad young females display their beauties or absence of beauties in public places. So it's making quite a strong social statement. It's making a kind of certain kind of critique about uh, contemporary societies, which may be a very le legitimate critique. It's also saying, I'm a Muslim and proud of it, and you guys are all infidels, and you know, there you are. It can mean just a whole range of different things are encapsulated there. I mean, I think one way of looking at it, you could say the niqab, which is, you know, the very strict form, is the new punk. You know, some guys wear Mohicans and, and, and some people dye their hair and do things to, in order to make a public statement. Some people cover themselves up and with just a slit for the eyes. To attribute theological or religious motives to these forms of behavior seems to me to be giving too much ground. It seems to me to be saying that you take them what they are saying at face value, whereas the whole point of any kind of analysis is to say, well, what's really going on here? And I don't think you can say one thing is really going on and another thing. What you have is a kind of cluster of motivations which drive people to behave in certain ways. And when you start unpacking those aspects of, of human behavior, whether it's to do with cultural celebration, whether it's to do with political activity, whether it's to do with social activities or, or even military activities, then you find that the motivations are really related to the particular. But of course, they will always claim the universal, because that is part of the rhetorical hyperbole, which we all do. Politicians will say, unless you vote for me, society's going to collapse and disintegrate. Everybody's involved in a kind of hyperbolic game. It's a form of advertising at the bottom line. That's exactly what advertisers have been doing for ever since advertising was invented. And one of the things that I think as an analyst you find interesting about religion is that hyperbole is built in to the discourse. That's what it's all about. So the very idea of the man chosen by God, whether it's Jesus or Muhammad or anybody else, is a huge piece of inflated hyperbole, if you really think about it. Now, the followers may make special claims for a particular individual. And that does become problematic because we come up against the difficulty that you can't really say, give equal status to all of them. You know, because uh, a person's identity may well be rooted around adhering to one particular set of criteria or teachings or beliefs, which by definition exclude others. Malie's Riven, you will have gathered by now, is a skeptic who thinks religion is something other than what it says it is. Indeed, he goes further and says that religion hasn't really been explained at all until one has grasped the vital interests that underlie its self-presentation. This view distinguishes him from many of the other thinkers in this series, who, by and large, have taken a more sympathetic view of religion, not necessarily as capital T truth, 
but at least as what one might call possible truth. Riven approaches religion as an analyst, and he understands this function as requiring him, in effect, to get under the hood and take the engine apart. How does it work? What makes it go? In the case of fundamentalism, the maintenance of identity is one key explanation that he offers. Another is adaptation. Religious practices, he says, can help people adapt in new circumstances. I think there are many adaptations which take place, and one of the characteristics is these adaptations are not always acknowledged. Again, part of the sort of inflated hyperbole of the fundamentalist discourse is not to acknowledge the adaptations that are being made. But I suppose a fairly interesting example, I mean, we've already talked a bit about the veil, but the veil has many different meanings. The female veil, which looms so large in contemporary Islamic discourse. But adaptation is certainly one of them. If you take the, say, traditional life in a rural village in in Egypt, there were kind of basic rules about male-female behavior. You weren't supposed to make eye contact with a woman if you passed her on the path because she might be somebody else's wife or sister. There were certain parts of the house where the women lived and men, only close family members, had access to and so forth. There's also a rich female culture, uh, say, around the communal washing place or something like that, where women talk and gossip and things like that. Now, you take those people who become urban migrants and they're packed into densely crowded high-rise buildings all sorts of problems arise. The kind of taboos about interacting with members of the opposite sex who in a horizontally organized space of the village wouldn't cause any particular problems could cause real sort of anxieties when people meet on the stairs or in the elevator or something like that. And so some anthropologists have noticed that you have an increase in this restrictive behavior where women cover themselves and so forth in order to protect themselves against those kind of encounters, to avoid those kind of encounters. But in the real world, you also have all sorts of accommodations which are taking place where actually, in order to make a living, those women are going out to work which they wouldn't have done in the village, or they'd have been working in the fields with other women, whereas they're having to mix with men in an urban setting. Another paradoxical example, which perhaps epitomized the contradictions you had in Saudi Arabia, was traditional view of religious scholars was that women shouldn't drive because it gives them too much mobility and they have to get permission and all the rest. And we know it's still against the the local laws in Saudi Arabia for women to drive. But the consequence is, in this hugely wealthy country, is that women hire foreign male drivers. So they're in constant contact with men to whom traditionalists would say they shouldn't be in their presence. But of course it's maintained by the difference in class levels between a wealthy Saudi lady sitting in the back of the car and the uh, Carolyn or, or Indian driver who's, you know, who's, who's actually acting as the chauffeur. But it does sort of mean that, yes, there are adaptations and accommodations, but there are also contradictions. And that is the kind of uh, maybe emblematic of the contradictory world in which we all, we all inhabit at the present time. Malise Riven's book, Fundamentalism, is a search for what he calls family resemblances between fundamentalist movements in different traditions. But fundamentalists don't just resemble each other. They also enthusiastically oppose each other. At the moment, we're living with what American political scientist Samuel Huntington first called the clash of civilizations the conflict between the West and Islam that Huntington, writing in the early 1990s, imagined would be the geopolitical next big thing after the Cold War. 
One can wonder whether such handy phrases tend to become self-fulfilling prophecies, while still recognizing that a history of conflict and misunderstanding stretching back to the Crusades has heated up once again in our time. Valise Riven has been studying Islam and thinking about the differences between Western and Islamic societies for a long time. As we mentioned at the outset, he joined the BBC's Arabic section in the early 1970s and brought out Islam in the World, the first of several books on the subject, in 1984. So I took the opportunity to ask him about one of the explanations I have most frequently heard of the differences between Islam and the West, that Western Christianity underwent a reformation, whereas Islam has not. This was his response. I think one of the issues that comes up if you compare the evolution of Christianity with that of Islam is that to some extent the reformist impulse, you could almost say, is built in to Islam. It perpetually kind of reinvents itself. So you have these reformist impulses, but they do not coalesce around particular schools or movements in the way that, say, they did in, in European history. They are omnipresent. You find them everywhere. And I suppose, put it at its lowest, you could say, well, you have a cacophony of competing interpretations without any structured, hierarchical, organized responses. After all, you take someone like Martin Luther, you know, trained in the Augustinian tradition, a formalized discourse which is then pitted against the formalized responses of the Catholic Church. It's a kind of structured way of addressing theological issues and their relationship with social issues. And you've had that throughout the the passage of the Christian West up till uh, the, the current arguments about uh, secularism versus uh, religiosity, which are going on in Britain at the, at, the, uh, at the present time. But my sense is that in the, in the Muslim world, these intellectual components are all there, but they operate in a very different context, in a very different setting. And I think part of the bottom line of that is that the gift of Christianity to Western culture was the idea of cohesive corporate identities. If you look back into organizational history in the West, you will see that the independent autonomous structure of the church as a body, the mystical body of Christ, which is distinct from the rest of society, all those medieval orders described in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, the different types of religion, the different types of religious order, the different types of costume. All of those ideas spoke to a certain kind of corporate allegiance, which then becomes secularized. And you could even say that I used to tell students to try to get them sit up in class that Jesus Christ was the first president of General Motors and they say this guy is completely crazy but there is a, a linear development between the cohesive structure corporate structure of the church right down to modern corporate entities what you find in the Muslim world is in a sense the absence of that we do not have any concept in Islamic legal thought of legal personality, the personality of the legal personality of the group, because nothing should stand between the individual and God. So the claims of religious authorities to be the mediators have always been under attack, have always been challenged. Um, in a sense, you could say that Every believer, every Muslim's believer's view of Islam is as good as anybody else's. The only criteria of distinction is your command of the text and the sources and, 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 and interpretation. But the idea of a formal, uh, universally recognized tradition of authority, such as the Pope, 
being the interpreter not just of the text but also of the tradition and of the teachings of the tradition is absence. And that, you could say from a critical Western perspective, is a recipe for the kind of uh, chaotic, anarchic effusions of religiosity we are seeing in the Muslim world at the present time. The religious fundamentalism that Malise Ribbon has been analyzing in today's program is just one face of a worldwide revival, or return as it's sometimes said, of religion. Another is the huge growth in charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity, often with a more politically progressive character. These religious movements, taken all together, have overturned the so-called secularization thesis, the prediction that modernization and industrialization would inevitably produce secularization. Religion in many places has waxed just when it was supposed to wane. But what does this mean? Malise Riven is cautious and balanced in his view. He agrees that secularization has not played out in the way that sociologists once predicted but he also thinks that things are not always as they seem and that apparently traditional and reactionary forms of religion may sometimes be a way in which people ease their adaptation to modern conditions. I think the secularization theory was obviously overdrawn. The counter-argument really comes from what we were talking about before, people like Forwell and Robertson in America, and then the revival of Islam, the revival of Judaism. You go to Jerusalem now. I was in Jerusalem in the 1960s, and you know, uh, you never saw anyone in black robes and broad-brimmed hats, and now you you hardly see anyone who isn't wearing a black, and apparently all the secular-minded Israelis are moving to Tel Aviv and so forth. So there is a, a big sweep towards increased religiosity. And I think the the bottom line there is that probably the uh, theorists of the 1960s and 70s hadn't taken account of this crucial factor of the construction of individual and group identities, which very often focus around religion, partly for the reasons I've suggested that the hyperbolic language of religion is a huge attraction for people. But I think the other important thing to take account of is religiosity is as much about public appearance and practice as it is about belief. It's how you present yourself in public. It's the clothes you wear. It's those kind of issues become quite significant and quite uh, important. And if you look very broadly, you will find that maybe that kind of religious behavior, like the veiled Muslim woman, is a subset of, in a way, the kind of group individualism which is very strong in our society. So, you know, some people are punks, some people wear the niqab. Modern societies favor pluralistic forms of expression, or plurality of forms of self-expression, in order to counter the tendencies towards homogenization and sort of plainness. You know, young kids want to wear a certain set of trainers in order to present yourself as a social being. You adopt a particular style of religiosity. And where the proponents of secularization theory have probably got it right in the long term, in the long durée, is that behind these forms, accommodations are happening. People are adjusting. It's not everything that it seems. I used to say to myself, if I find myself, as I often do, sitting next to a nun or a rabbi at 35,000 feet, I'm sitting next to a hypocrite. I'm sitting next to someone whose discourse has not generated the particular kind of human activity that made it possible for such 
things to fly at incredible speeds. Uh, the engineering is actually done by people who may be going to church, they may be going to the synagogue, but at the end of the day, the actual work that they're doing with their hands is the outcome of what we call the Enlightenment project. The secularization theorists were wrong in thinking that human beings are ideologically, intellectually consistent. What they perhaps neglected was the fact that all of us have different kind of needs and we do one thing in one context and behave in a slightly different way in a different context. We live in contradiction. Consistency isn't an option. The persistence and renewed vitality of religion, in Malise Riven's view, doesn't mean that there has been no secularization. Some of what was expected under that name has taken place, as it were, under the cover of religion. And on top of this, Riven says finally, the term secular itself is often used in confusing and contradictory ways. The one other observation I would make about the whole secular argument is that I think we are imprecise in our use of language. There's a distinction has to be made between secularism, which is the promotion of a secular, godless ideology, if you like, uh, in public discourse, and what you might call secularity, which is the condition of modernity, because secularity is really the recognition of pluralism. That very pluralism, which we've only now started coming to terms with in northeastern Ireland, where I grew up, is a fact of the modern world. So that kind of secularity is universal. There's nothing anyone's going to be able to do about it. The secularism that says, well, we ought to get rid of all this stuff and just live modern, rational human beings, that's never going to get any traction because I think our... People talk of spiritual needs, but I think our psychic needs, perhaps more broadly, requires that we root our identities in certain communal rituals, ideas, and so forth. And generally speaking, religious organizations or religious traditions that have a long history of practice in this area do a better job of that than the so-called secular ones. I'm not myself a personal believer, but I would hesitate to have the British Humanist Society preside over my funerals, simply because the way they do that is so bland and boring, whereas at least the rich language of the Anglican prayer book gives you something to hold on to, even if you don't believe a word of what he is saying. On Ideas, you've listened to the fourth episode of The Myth of the Secular. The series continues tomorrow at this time. It was written and presented by David Cayley, with the help of Bernie Lucht, Dave Field, and Liz Nage. You can revisit the program or download a podcast at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter and find out what's coming up on the show. The executive producer of Ideas is Pam Bertrand. I'm Paul Kennedy. The news is next on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159.